Oh man, would y'all thank Ryan for sharing with us, giving us the update. And I hope that that gets you as excited as it gets me. Let me sort of add my two cents there, but actually before I do, turn to Philippians chapter two, that's where we're gonna be tonight. As you're turning, let me, let me add my two cents there and say, I'm so excited about this opportunity to live out our mission as a church, and I just wanna encourage you, get involved. If you can tutor, if you can help us with hospitality, if you can just give towards, uh, towards you know, the, the funds that we'll need to continue to support this endeavor, love for you to do that. And I'll tell you, there could not be a better lead in to the text we're gonna look at tonight, which speaks to uh, living a life worthy of the gospel and how that relates to humility. Uh, and so we'll, we'll, you'll see the ties as, that, as it relates to, to this community resource center initiative. So I just wanna encourage you all at home, here tonight, Thursday night, really pray and think about how you get involved and continue to give generously to support this kind of work. It is uh, imperative to us to be great partners with, let me just say this, if you're in education, some of you here tonight are in education, some of you at home are in education, we know this is a harder season perhaps than any one you've ever been in in all your time in education. And we wanna say we see you, we know it's hard, and we want to support you and come behind you. Not just because there are vulnerable kids who are in need of that, but also because there are teachers and educators and administrators who have given their whole lives and been called by God, we know, to do this work. And we know it is not easy and we see you and we're with you. We wanna be behind you, all right? Church, yes, would you say yes to that? Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's do this. As we dive into our text tonight, um, it's, it's so rich, it's so full, and so we've got a lot of ground to cover. But here's the other thing. The thing it wants to address in our hearts is the thing that fights hardest against the goodness of God working in our hearts, and it's pride. And so I do, we need to identify that right out of the chute tonight. And we just need to pray against it. So I want to ask you if you would just pray. Even perhaps take a posture of just open-handedness. Just open your hands before the Lord and say, what you have for me I want to receive tonight. Because the thing, church, you need to recognize is that this text, this, this living and active word that we come to tonight is here to do battle against pride in your heart. The pride that is both hidden, that might deceive you by making you believe it's not there, and the pride that rears its head and says, I'm here and I'm not going away. And I, I, I vehemently will push against God's word tonight. And it takes intentionality to lay our lives down before the authority of God's word. So would you do that with me tonight? Just join me in prayer. Don't just listen to me pray now. Friends at home, friends here. Let's pray together that God's word would have its way with us tonight. So let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, we say again, your word is living it is God-breathed. It has authority over us. We do not have authority over it. It's your word. And so we come tonight, and we submit ourselves to it. We come underneath it, and we ask you, we ask you by the power of your spirit to move through your word so that we might see where pride refuses to die in us and that you would give us a new breath of understanding of places in our lives where pride has reared itself and where we need your humility, King Jesus, to overcome it. And we pray you would help us to see your perfect example of humility tonight and then to live in it and to walk
walk in it by the power of your spirit. We pray that you would do because we know that we cannot. But we are here to work out our salvation with fear and trembling as your word tells us to. So we pray it in the mighty name of Jesus, our humble king. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope that you have found Philippians chapter 2. We're actually going to begin at the very end of chapter 1, verse 27, and move through chapter 2, verse 11. But before I read those with you, uh, my family's been watching during COVID, been home a little bit more. We've been watching a lot of Disney Plus. Anybody been watching some Disney Plus? Good streaming service, right? And for my money, my favorite Disney animated movie. Think about yours for a moment, right? Some of you are thinking Lion King. Some of you are thinking uh, Brave. So, you know, you've got your favorite out there, right? And I don't know, do we include Pixar now that they're under the Disney family? Do we allow that? Uh, I don't know. All right, so I'm old school, right? I love my old Disney animation. For my money, my favorite is Aladdin. I really love Aladdin. So if you've seen Aladdin, and not, I gotta say, not the new one. The old one, right? The old animated one, I love it. Uh, if you remember in Aladdin, at the beginning, there is uh, a thief that Jafar, who's the bad guy, is, is trying to convince to steal a lamp for him, and so he gets something that he needs, and it opens up in the desert of Arabia, the Cave of Wonders. Do you all remember this? The Cave of Wonders, and as the Cave of Wonders pops up, uh, it's a big, like, tiger's head, and it says, only one may enter here. Seek out the what? Anybody remember? The diamond in the rough. And so the, the thief quickly is swallowed up, right? And so Jafar, another I'm going to go find this diamond in the rough. And of course, the diamond in the rough turns out to be Aladdin, whose humble beginnings, his humble estate, his humble way of life is part of what makes him both a diamond, but a diamond in the rough. It's what makes him worthy to enter the cave of wonders where no one else can and I was thinking about that this week because as we come to the end of Philippians chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, we're going to see a relationship between worthiness and humility. In particular, what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel, Paul is going to say, and how humility then becomes the life spring or the source of that kind of life that is worthy of the gospel. So that's really our big idea today as we come to, our, as we come to this part of the book of Philippians as we've been studying the book together. We've been talking about gospel ambition. All through chapter one, Paul was saying what? He was saying, let me share with you the benefits of a life lived for advancing the gospel. If you live your life this way, there's gonna be this, these benefits to you of deeper relationships and of reframing circumstances and of changing the way you deal with conflict and even of, of turning the way you see death on its head, right? And, and so there's all these transformative things that happen from living to advance the gospel, now he's going to turn from sort of pointing to his own example in chapter 1 of saying, this is how I've lived. Now, look at this. I want you to see it. He's going to turn from that sort of to now instruction. So from informing to instructing, if you will, as we begin the end of chapter 1 and, and beginning of chapter 2. He's going to be saying now, I'm, I'm now let me instruct you, Philippian church, on how you should live and what a life worthy of the gospel looks like, and he's going to teach us that a life worthy of the gospel finds its source in humility. In other words, without humility, you cannot live a life worthy of the gospel. So we're going to do a couple things tonight. Let me give you our roadmap for the evening. Our aim is to be compelled to pursue humility so that our lives would reflect the gospel that we claim to believe, right? 
so that our lives will reflect the gospel we claim to believe. So we're going to look at what a life worthy of the gospel is. What does that phrase mean that we're going to find in verse 27 of chapter 1? Then we're going to ask, how does this passage define humility for us? What is humility? It's one of those things that we sort of know it when you see it, but often it's hard to put words to. Would you agree with that? Sometimes it can be hard to put words to what it means to be humble. So we're going to ask, what is a definition of humility? And then the third thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the example of Jesus that Paul gives to us. And he points us, it's the center of our text tonight. This beautiful, brilliant hymn of worship to Jesus that says this is, this is what a humble king, a humble savior, a humble Lord we have. Let's follow his example. And then the last thing, we'll look at the motivation that he offers for us to pursue humility. It's not something that you kind of hear, maybe in church world we've gotten used to sort of affirming humility is this valuable thing and therefore we should want to pursue it. But friends, do you know that humility, uh, when you really understand what it is, it, you have to have a motivation to pursue it because it's hard and humility means lowering ourselves and it means often not having what we want. And, and so humility takes a certain level of motivation and so he, Paul's gonna offer that to us. So just to kind of repeat that, what is a life worthy of the gospel? What is humility? How is it defined? What is the example of Jesus? And then what motivation does Paul offer us to pursue humility? So let's begin with the first of those things. What is a life worthy of the gospel? Let's read our text together. I'm going to read all the way from verse 27 of chapter 1 all the way through uh, verse 11 of chapter 2 just so we get the whole thing in one sitting here. So follow along with me. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we come to the text tonight. The first thing that we see in verse 27 of chapter one all the way through chapter two, verse two, is this idea of a life worthy of the gospel. Now I said Paul has transitioned us from demonstrating the benefits of gospel ambition, from informing us, now to instructing us and the Philippians how to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So let's ask what does that phrase mean? Well the first thing you need to understand is that phrase, uh, let me grab the phrase, sorry, manner of life. Uh, in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy. When he says manner of life, that phrase literally means live like a citizen. Live like a citizen of heaven is what Paul is saying. So when he says live in a manner worthy of the gospel, we could literally translate that phrase, act like you are a citizen of heaven in the way that you live. Live like you, that's where you belong. Live like that's your true home, your true citizenship. So let me share a few thoughts then. If that's what that phrase literally means then, there's a couple things that we can take from that. We are to live as a people whose primary citizenship is not here, but in heaven. Now that means our first allegiance is there and that we advocate on behalf of our true home. When you're a citizen of a place, you advocate on behalf of that place. So think ambassadorship is a pretty good parallel in our sort of day and age. Someone who serves as an ambassador from one country to another lives in that other country, but what are they there to do? They're there to represent their country in that place. And that idea of ambassadorship is really close to what Paul means when he says, look, you live here and you are citizens of this place, but it's not where your true citizenship lies. If you want to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, then you have to live like you are truly citizens of heaven, not first and foremost citizens of this world or any country or any place or any city in this world. Now, that said, that ambassador analogy said, we shouldn't just think of citizenship as a political endeavor. I don't want to get us sort of too far down that road, but as an all-encompassing one. In other words, to live as citizens of heaven is not just to sort of think in terms of a political representation. It is to think about the way we deal with politics and the way we think about persons and the way we think about uh, our possessions and the way we think about our prizes. It, it is an all-encompassing idea. You with me? To live as citizens of heaven. That's what Paul means. Now, good citizens give others an experience of their home through the way they live. Good citizens give others an experience of their home through the way they live. When Amanda and I were considering coming here, we were interviewing here at the church, and there was a search team and the elder board, and we would meet with them, and in our first trip up here, so we'd had some like, uh, you know, Skype interviews, some, uh, some like Zoom calls where we were first interviews, and then when they decided to fly us up to have sort of more serious conversations, uh, one of the first things we did was dinner at one of the search team members' houses, and they, they did a game with us before we did any interviewing, and it was Pennsylvania trivia, and I learned a lot of weird facts about Pennsylvania, right, about town names in Pennsylvania, about places and history and all these things I had no clue about. I was learning all about Pennsylvania. We were taught about Utz's potato chips. We were taught about sticky buns. Oh, my goodness, sticky buns, right, so good. We were taught... Uh, about Scrapple, yeah, exactly. 
The room is always divided when you bring up Scrapple, even among Pennsylvanians, right? I mean, when we first moved here, there were some people who were like, we're taking you for Scrapple now so you can decide if you're on Team Scrapple or not on Team Scrapple. And I just got to tell you, my wife and I, we are not on Team Scrapple. Right, so we had to learn, we're learning about, but you know what was fun about that? As, as non-Pennsylvanians who had only like been through here one time, we knew nothing about the place really or the history of it. And, and we learned a wealth of information because those who were citizens of this place were teaching us what life is like here. They took it upon themselves to teach us what life is like when you're a citizen of this place. And it was, it was delightful, it was wonderful. See, the, the same thing is true for those of us who are citizens of heaven. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel is to live as citizens of heaven and to do that. You give people, through your actions, through your words, through your, the way you express yourself, the way choices you make, the way you spend your money, whatever, in every area of life, you and I give each other, or sorry, you and I are supposed to give others a, a taste, an experience of what heaven is like, what citizens of heaven do what they know, how they think, how they operate. Now, Paul in this text gives us three attributes of citizens of heaven. So I wanna point those out to you because we'd be remiss if we didn't identify them. And he, and he does it twice, actually. He does it at the end of chapter one and then he does it again in verse two of chapter two where he sort of repeats the same idea. And in the middle, in verse one of chapter two, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any participation in the spirit, right? If, and he's not saying to the Philippians, if this has happened. He's assuming it's happened because he knows that they are Christians. And he's saying, I know that you've had participation in the Spirit. I know that you've had encouragement. And so he's sort of asking a rhetorical question, if you will, almost like, hey, if this, is, if this has happened, and he's kind of winking, I know that it has. If this has happened, then you should live this way because you've experienced the grace and the goodness of Christ. Right, and so here's what he says. He gives us three things, two different times. Uh, at least two of these he gives two times. But look at verse 28 with me. When he says, oh no, sorry, it's still in verse 27. He says, Live, uh, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, and here they are, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. And go down to verse two of chapter two now, where he says, complete my joy by being of the same what? Mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So here's the three things I see there that he's saying a citizen of heaven does these three things. Number one is they stand firm in the truth. They stand firm in the truth. Number two is that they are united in love and in purpose together. They are united in love and in purpose. Now, if you recall back to the very first sermon in our whole series here, we talked about five uh, five marks of a Christ-centered life that we were gonna come to again and again throughout this book. These are two of them. If you remember of, of the five, these are two. Unity with other believers, standing firm in the truth. And he's saying citizens of heaven do those two things. And then the last one he says is there's a fearlessness to people who are citizens of heaven. Not a fearfulness, but a fearlessness. And I love that. So let, let me just touch on each one of those briefly. I, I've got... We've got to get to the real crux of the text, so I can't just spend forever here, but I, I just gotta point this out. Citizens of heaven stand firm in the truth because the laws of heaven rule us, not the laws of men, yes? We are ruled by the laws of heaven, not by the laws of men. Now, this doesn't mean we ignore the laws of the land, 
but we live according to a higher law because what is permissible under the law of the land is not always what is right. What is permissible is not always what is right. And we live according to a higher law. Citizens of heaven are united in love and in purpose because we belong to a kingdom whose ruling ethic is grace. And so we love each other and we give each other grace. That's a, that's a demonstration of love. We, the, ruling, the ruling law of the land in our kingdom is grace, mercy, steadfast love. And because that's the ruling ethic, the thing that rules the day in our kingdom where we are citizens, we love each other with a steadfast love and we fight to love each other because the ruling ethic is grace. And listen, we have a kingdom whose king has a 100% approval rating. No one wants him out of office. Nobody wants to remove him. He's the king. And not only does he have 100% approval rating from all of his subjects in his kingdom and none of us want to remove him, not only does he have that, he has 100% power to accomplish all that he wants to accomplish, so he's never ineffectual. Citizens of heaven are in a kingdom where we have a king that we love and we never want removed, and therefore, we are united in purpose underneath whatever the marching orders that king gives us to do are. Whatever he says, this is, this is your purpose, then we say, yes, yes, and we are about that thing. And we go after that thing. We don't have to have a discussion about it. We don't have to debate whether or not he's right or wrong. We don't have to wonder if purposes will be accomplished. We just say, that's our purpose. Because that's the kingdom and that's the king. You with me? What a great place to be a citizen of. And the last thing here is fearlessness. The last thing is fearlessness. Now, listen, the context here is so clearly the context of a place where the, the ethic, the morals of the gospel are not taking root. They're not being ensconced in law. This is a place where believers are being persecuted because of what they believe. And in that context, Paul is saying, don't be afraid. Your fearlessness is evidence of your salvation. Your fearlessness is evidence that you are truly a citizen of this other kingdom. So be fearless. Don't be afraid. Can I, let me just, here is I think an appropriate place during an election season to remind us of something really important about the way believers think about politics, okay? And I, I wanna remind you of this. Do not cast your vote based out of fear. Live fearlessly and vote fearlessly. Where, where, however your vote falls, whatever you choose to do, vote based on what justice and righteousness require of you. Vote based upon what justice and righteousness require of you, not out of fear of what rights might be taken away from us or what rights might be ensconced for us. Can I remind you of something, even as you think about this? And friends, be active, vote, be involved. What a privilege to live in a democracy where we have the power. I mean, this, you recognize in, in the scriptures, every word that we're getting about governance the people writing it have no participation in that governance, right? Paul had no authority over, so they just, there was a freedom that they had in that, like, we have no control over that. So our job then is to live under whatever situation we're in, just faithfully for justice and righteousness. That's our job. So we have this challenging work to do, living in this really privileged place where we get to participate in the governance of our country. What a privilege that is. 
Think about what justice and righteousness require. Do not be afraid and do not cast votes based out of fear. Let me remind you of two things. Number one, if the vote goes the way that you want it to go and you think then uh, that that is a good thing and it may even bring about good systemic change, it might bring about good policy, things we can celebrate and be glad for. But can I remind you that policy and the results of a vote have almost never, I might say never, changed the heart of a person. It's, and so whatever, if it, if it goes the way you want it to go, your job is not done. My job is not done because hearts have to be turned to Jesus and votes don't make that happen. And policy doesn't make that happen. The witness of God's people make that happen. So if the vote goes the way you want it to go, you're not done. And can I remind you then, if the vote goes the way you don't want it to go, can I remind you that God's people have historically always been more effective in sharing the gospel and in seeing the gospel go forward when they haven't been in the seat of power, when they've been under the thumb, when they've lost their liberties, actually. They've been more powerful in the true work of the gospel. That is just a historical fact of the church. Do you know that? It's just good to keep both those things in mind, friends, as we come into this season. Don't move forward by fear. Move forward fearlessly that whatever happens, God is on the throne. Be active, participate, vote according to justice and righteousness. Walk that out. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Our job will not be done if the vote goes the way you want it to go. And if it doesn't go the way you want it to go, remember that God's people have often been most effective for his kingdom when they have not been in power. All right. Let's move to the second thing. So those are just some reminders for us then. So that's a description of what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel, Paul talks about. Now let's move to defining humility. And that's what happens in the next verses. Verses three and four, we find that Paul gives us a definition of humility. Now remember what we said, our big idea here is that a life worthy of the gospel requires humility. That's the flow of this whole text. That's why we have to know what humility is, what it looks like, right? We want to define it. So let's give just the simplest definition I can give you. Look at verses three and four. Let's read them again. They say this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So let me offer that Paul is defined, he's giving us two parts to the definition of humility. Part one is counting others more significant than yourselves. That has to do with your thought life, doesn't it? How do I think of others? How do I count them in the way I think about them? How do I count them more significant than myself? And then the second part is action. If the first part is thought, the second part is action, looking to the interests of others. So here's the definition of humility I'm gonna give you. Very simple. Humility means putting what is best for others ahead of what is best for me. Humility means putting what is best for others ahead of what is best for me. Now, here's why I would define it that way, because the thing that you're gonna notice is that Paul does not talk about humility as a character trait in this text. Now, humility no doubt is a character trait, but all throughout, he talks about humility as a choice, as an action, not so much as just a character trait that you produce. In other words, he doesn't talk about it as a noun, he talks about it as a verb. Humility is something you do more than humility is something you are. Now, those two things are related. Yes, you get that? 
Those two things clearly are related. If I am humble, I will operate in humility. But all throughout, what he's really doing is he's saying, he's not saying become humble, become humble, become humble. He's saying choose the humble path. Choose the humble path. Tomorrow morning when you get up, choose the humble path. Tomorrow night when you go to bed, choose the humble path. Whatever humility calls for in any circumstance that you face, choose that road. When you come to that fork in the road and it's humility this way, something else that way, choose this way. Go the direction of humility. Just think about this. There is no situation that you will face from the moment you leave this place, from the moment, even right now as you listen to me, you have to make a choice about whether you will choose the path of humility. Will I listen to God's word and humble myself underneath it? Or will I choose the path of pride and say, no, I reject what it says? You're making a decision now. And when you walk out of here, you'll make a decision when you're on the road and that guy cuts you off. How will you act? What will you do when you get home? Listen, and you just walk through your day, right? When I get up in the morning, do I make the bed or let my roommate make the bed or my spouse make the bed? Do I choose to unload the dishwasher or do I make them unload the dishwasher? Do I make the kids lunches? Do I leave the last bit of coffee or drink it for myself? Do I play with the kids when they ask rather than watching the highlights from the sports uh, event last night that I really want to know who won? Do I get get them ready for class? Do I get to class early if I'm a student or meeting or to a meeting at work on time so that I show that I value other people's time? Do I invite everyone's insight in that meeting to show them that what they have to offer is meaningful and valuable? Do I finish my work day when I say I will so I can get home when I promise to be home? Do I uh, make the dinner? Do I do the dishes again? Do I handle the kids' baths? I mean, just one thing after another after another. Every one of those choices faces us with the opportunity to say, will I choose humility? Because what is humility? Doing what is best for the other person rather than what is best for me. There is no choice that you will face tomorrow or the next day or the day after that that does not require you to put it through the grid of humility. Are you with me? And this is what Paul is saying. He's not saying become sort of some generically humble person, whatever that means. He's saying, let me just tell you what humility is. It's doing what's best for them, not what's best for you. Do that. And then just do it again and do it again. Do you know that's how you become humble? That's how you become humble. You keep making humble choices. You choose the path of humility. The other thing, look, let me say this. Being humble doesn't mean beating myself up or falsely downplaying my own capabilities. That's not humility. It just means choosing to think of what is best for others before myself and then acting on that. Now, we saw those two parts. Remember, humility begins in the mind. Do I count others more important than myself? That's an act of the mind. That's a way that I think. And it begins in the mind, but it always must lead to action. So let me say this, like as by way of illustration, like I'm a husband. If I'm a husband and I praise my wife and I praise my kids up one side and down the other, and I'm constantly saying to them how great they are and I'm counting them uh, more valuable than myself, but then I 
do whatever I want. I never communicate my plans to my wife. I never ask if it's okay if I'm like out and gone for this time with the guys. If I never, if I never ask what is best for her rather than what is best for me, I can talk about that all day long and even in my mind convince myself that I am considering her more important than myself. But if that doesn't make its way to actions, I have not chosen the path of humility. That's what it means to walk in humility. And we're gonna see that as we turn to the example of Christ. So again, just to connect the dots here, the reason humility, the reason humility is required to live a life worthy of the gospel is because all the things that we saw that were a part of a, you know, living a life worthy of the gospel, being a citizen of heaven, the fearlessness, the standing firm in the truth, the being united in love and in purpose, all those things, they're corporate things. They're done together. We're not fearless alone. We're fearless together, right? We don't stand firm in the truth alone. We stand firm in the truth together. Paul's not saying, you, individual person, stand firm in the truth. Yes, that's good. He's saying, you, collective group of the church, stand firm in the truth. Be united in mind, right? So that's done corporately. So what that tells me then is the only way to have the kind of relationships with one another where we live as citizens of heaven together is if we act in humility towards one another. If I do what's best for you rather than what's best for me, and if you do what's best for me rather than what is best for you, if we all were always asking that question, am I choosing what's best for me right now? Am I choosing what's best for them? Man, I pray, I, I pray that I would grow as a man, as a follower of Jesus, to, to every day of my life choose what's best for you all, not what's best for me. And I pray that as your pastor, I could lead you to choose what's best for each other, not what's best for you. More and more and more. One of the questions I've, I'm inviting you to ask in your life groups this week is, is there any limit to that? Is there any time where it's okay to say, I'm gonna choose what's best for me. I want you to wrestle with that question this week. It's a big one, right? Because right now, even as I think about do what's best for others, you might be thinking, well, but what about this caveat? What if this person does this? Or what if they do that? It's challenging. I want you to think through, is there any exception to this rule? And I want you to think about the example of Jesus then. So let's come to that now. Let's look at the example of Jesus where we find this in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So in other words, what he's saying there is follow the example of Jesus. Now most of the time when Paul is talking about how we get transformed, he often says, you have already received the righteousness that you need from Christ. Now just live that out, right? Live out who you are. More often, he points to Christ as the one who's transformed us already. Now we've got to live in that he doesn't often just point to Jesus as an example, like as a good example, because he's far more than a good example, yes? He's far more, but here he actually is saying, I, I just want you to see his example, and I want you to follow it. So he says, follow the example of Jesus. Now verse six, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now we're gonna see that word, the form of God, we're gonna see that word form three times in this text. The form of God, the form of a servant, and in human form. That word form to you and I sounds like it's saying he looked like God, but he maybe wasn't really God, that he put on the outward appearance. That's not what that word means. What that word means, form there, it literally means having the outward appearance that reflects the true inner nature of something. 
So when it says he was in the form of God, it means literally he had the outward appearance that displayed, I don't mean his physical appearance, but that he displayed for us in his actions and in his being what God is or who God is. So he truly was God is what that word means. Not in the form of God like he just looked like him, but he truly was God in his very nature. Who being in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And if you have the ESV, there's a footnote there, and it's a great translation, which says, did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto for his own advantage, to be used for his own advantage. And that's a great understanding of what that means. It doesn't mean that he let go of being divine, that he stopped being God at any point, but rather it means that he did not consider uh, he did not consider his divine status as something to be used for himself, but rather as something to be used for you and I. That he chose to use his divine nature for your good and mine, not for his own. Then we go to verse seven where it says this. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men so that idea that he emptied himself, again, doesn't mean that he became less than God or less than divine or that he emptied himself of any divine attribute, actually. What it means is defined by the phrases that come after it. When it says he emptied himself, then how did he empty himself? In what way did he empty out, pour himself out? In what way did he do that? He did it by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And then in verse eight, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now here's the flow of the text. The flow of the text moves progressively down, lower and lower. He was God, and he chose to leave his throne and come into the world. He became a human. And not only that, he became the kind of human that is a servant. The word there is actually slave. He chose to become a slave. In other words, one who gave up all his rights. One who did not say, this is my right to have this or to do that. And not only did he come as a human and a human who was a slave or a servant, but he then even submitted himself to death, which he's God. And to submit himself to death is something that is counter to the very definition of being God. And so he submitted himself to death and then it goes even lower and not just any kind of death, but the worst kind of death. Death on a cross, which Jewish law said anyone who dies on a cross on a tree is cursed by God. And he bore that curse for you and for me. That's absolutely true. Galatians, Paul says in Galatians, he was cursed, but not because of anything he did, but because of what you and I did. God cursed him to free us from the curse of sin. So do you see the flow of the text is lower and lower and lower and lower and lower at every turn. Jesus goes lower to show humility to us. That's the example that we are to follow. If I wanna do what's best for others ahead of what is best for me, I have to follow that example. And that means at the very least, I'll tell you just one thing, at the very least it means not making decisions based upon what I, what, based upon what I think it is my right to have. Rights-based decision-making always leads to me claiming I have a right to do this or to have that, and therefore you shouldn't deny me that thing. That is nowhere in the thinking of Jesus. 
and his humility. He doesn't make decisions based upon what it is his right to have. And he's the only one who can truly claim to have that right. He lays it down. And he says, I don't make decisions based on that. But I make decisions based on humility. What is best for others, not what is best for me. And friends, can I say, how many marriages, how many friendships struggle and strain because we make decisions based upon rights-based decision-making rather than humility-based decision-making. How many relationships struggle under the strain of that? Now, if that, te- if that part of the text took us down and down and down, can I tell you where the next part is taking us? Up and up and up. Look at verses 9 through 11. We'll close with this. Therefore, in other words, because of his humbling of himself, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Does that just pump you up? So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father love that the glory of the father is gotten through the exaltation of the son they are equally divine not in competition for glory but can i tell you the first part was taking us down and down and down the result the result of jesus's humbling of himself was then his exaltation and that gives us two motivations two motivations for for walking in humility ourselves choosing the path of humility number one is that he has now been exalted and has the name above every name, including my own. His name is above my name, which means I want to obey him, whatever he says. And if he says, take the path of humility, I want to obey that, and I want to take the path of humility, because his name is above my name. He is exalted. The second motivation is this. Remember that in Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, whoever humbles himself will be what? Exalted. In the kingdom of God, we will be exalted for choosing humility here and now. And it's good that we do it because there's a type of exaltation that can happen when sin is eradicated. There's an exaltation that can happen that is not the result of selfish ambition or vain conceit so that it doesn't harm others. There will be an exaltation that will be possible without it being... um, harmful to someone else, which is why he can motivate us with future exaltation to be humble now, and why that's not just contradictory as to where I'm going to get there, and then I'm supposed to then get exalted. As I, he says, no, absolutely pursue exaltation in the place where sin is no more. Those who humble themselves will be exalted in the same way, not in the identical way that Jesus is exalted as a result of his humility, but that pattern still holds true. There will be an exaltation that will be there for all who humble themselves now. Isn't that good news, church? What good news that is. So friends, the Lord is encouraging us. He's imploring us today through the words of Paul. Do not, do nothing out of selfish ambition, do nothing out of vain conceit, but in humility, count others more important than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. What a good day it is as we live that more and more and more together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. What a good thing it is to to sit underneath your word and to just receive it. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for bringing us 
your word tonight. And even now as we turn to sing Christ, our hope in life and death, we sing as a people who I pray that by your word and its power have been appropriately humbled tonight. We confess our pride to you. We ask you to come and make us humble. Thank you, Jesus, for your perfect example. Now fill us with the power of the Spirit so that we might walk according to your example, that we might do what is best for each other, not what is best for ourselves. Would you do just a, a work of solidifying now that truth in us even as we sing to you, worship you as a way of lowering ourselves and raising you and saying, you are high. You are the name that is above every name. And so we're glad to sing to you and proclaim. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Church family, let's sing together. Why don't you stand with me?